what Adam did was infect the entire human race with sin. One of the amazing things that Jesus did on the cross is that he abolished that infection. So that because of what Jesus did on the cross, people will only be in heaven or hell in relationship to their own sins. They will only be in heaven because of belief in the truth. And they will only be in hell because of refusing to believe in the truth in relationship to their own sins. Let's pray before we begin today. Heavenly Father, as we look at the way to your kingdom, the way to transfer from this fallen world into a kingdom, an eternal life, to know you, to know your son as your son prayed the night that he was betrayed. Help us to understand, not only for ourselves, um, but help us to paint this picture that we will see today to those that we know, that maybe know him, maybe don't, and some who clearly don't. In Jesus' name, amen. So, everything in God's reality happens before the creation of the world. The rapture has happened in God's reality before the creation of the world. That doesn't mean that his son did not step into time, did not come down, did not sacrifice and pay for our sins. And it doesn't mean that we won't realize it in time. I want us to look in John chapter six. First of all, God so loved you. God so loved the world, which is whosoever believes, whoever acknowledges who Jesus is and whoever acknowledges Jesus in the way that he is asked to be acknowledged will, ha will have eternal life. They will not be condemned. In John chapter 6, we find an important verse that is true for God since the creation and even before the creation, and that points to the Father's involvement. John 6 and verse 44, Jesus is speaking when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That's an important statement to underline in your Bible that when God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, 100% of people are drawn to Christ the Son by God the Father. So we read harsh reality like in Psalms chapter 14 verses 1 and 2, which Paul refers to in Romans then no one seeks God at their initiative. When we seek God, it is in response to his initiative. So God the Father is drawing every human being who will ever live to his son. And then Jesus promises at the end of this verse, I will raise them up at the last day. But Jesus is giving us the reality here that no one gets saved without the Father drawing them. So the response that we have to Christ is initiated by God the Father. Turn to chapter 12, John chapter 12, and we see the Son's involvement. And in particular, when this involvement was invoked, John chapter 12, verse 27 this is a significantly important chapter in the Gospel of John. Jesus, in verse 27, is contemplating his death and the difficulty of being separated from his Father and paying for our sins and delivering them to hell. And he says in verse 27, my, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So Peter says he was chosen before the creation of the world. Later in 1 Peter 1, Peter says, but he's revealed in these last days for our sake. Jesus is almost to that moment and he is saying, should I say, Father, don't let this happen. Of course not, Jesus is saying. What we decided before the creation of the world is exactly what I'm about to do. So I'm not going to ask him that. We read on verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. We just sang about the glorification of the Father in a song. Glorification of the Father comes through us acknowledging the Son. So he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. This is, I don't want to get ahead of Sunday school next week. A voice came from heaven 
I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So just like in Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks in this prominent moment. The Trinity decided that Jesus would go to the cross for the sins of all mankind. And so Jesus says, rather than say, Father, don't let this happen, he says, Father, receive glory from it. And the Father says, I have and I will again. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said, they heard the voice of the Father, it had thundered. Others said, an angel had, had spoken. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. It didn't need to be audible for Jesus, it needed to be audible for them. Verse 31, now the time has come for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And we see this critical verse that we looked at last week in election, John 12, verse 32. And when I am lifted up, verse 33 says that he's talking about the cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There's a lot of theology in that verse. First of all, who does Jesus draw? Everyone. Who does the Father draw? Everyone. Who comes to Jesus without the Father drawing them? No one. From this moment, salvation turns and Jesus does something new. God the Father is always drawing people. Abraham or Adam or way back before the cross acknowledged God. They acknowledged the spirit of God the Father. They acknowledged Elohim, which is the spirit of Jesus. They acknowledged Adonai, which is Jesus. They acknowledged the angel of the Lord, which we will see later today. Now, when Jesus is lifted up, he's drawing them to himself through the cross. So the believing in God has gone from who God is to include what God has done. So Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates, God the Father demonstrates his love for us. And then while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So John 6.44 saying that the Father draws everyone is in Romans 5.8. Sinner, you've sinned against me, you've sinned my son, I love you so much, I'm drawing you to myself through my son. So Romans 5.8, God demonstrates, is an active, ongoing, perpetual Greek phrase there, meaning that when we celebrate communion today, the demonstrating of the cross doesn't stop. He is demonstrating through his word today what he demonstrated through reality 2,000 years ago. He continually demonstrates. So Jesus says here that when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Turn to chapter 16. John 16. We see the involvement of the Spirit. No one gets saved without the involvement of the Spirit. When we are saved, it is the Spirit who regenerates us, who makes us into a spiritually eternal, God-dwelling being. Until we are saved, John 16 and verse 8, this is the Holy Spirit's role. When he comes, he will prove to the world, or he will prove the world to be wrong about sin Righteousness and justice, judgment. Those three things. The world needs to be shown that they're a sinner. They need to be shown that righteousness is the only thing that can dwell with God and that righteousness is in a human being and a God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the person who went up when a person hears the words about Christ, points out to that person who Christ is, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And finally, it is the Holy Spirit who says, you will be judged 
by what you do with Jesus Christ, by what you do with his offer. Turn to Luke chapter 5 as we begin our story today. Um, I don't know if story is the right word. We're, we're going to view a conversion today. We're going to see firsthand what needs to happen in every human being who will be found in heaven one day. And we're going to look at the conversion of the Apostle Peter. Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we're at the beginning, the outset of Jesus' ministry. He has just been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He has read from the book of Isaiah in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. Now he is down by the lake. And this important picture happens to us. It is a real picture of the, the conversion of the Apostle Peter, and it is the same order in which everyone comes to Christ. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 1, one day Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret. Genesaret is um, one of four names for the, the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, Genesaret points to a town that is on the, the Sea of Galilee. But he is at the Sea of Galilee. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So today, when we have the word of God, conversion involves the word of God. Peter, in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, about verse 23, says that we are born again through the word of God. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words about Christ. So Jesus is preaching here. This is a, a, a large gathered crowd. Peter is near the crowd. I say it that way because he's not, he's not actually in the crowd. But he's near the crowd and he's near enough to hear Jesus. Um, Jesus would explain the parable of the four soils not long after this. And Peter would have undoubtedly thought back to when he was converted and understood the parable of the four soils. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, one day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gen Genesaret. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So many examples through the book of Acts. People are listening to the word of God, the words about Christ, and they actually get saved while the preaching is going on. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So this picture here is that the, the Sea of Galilee is here. Here's the, the, the shore, maybe a sandy shore. Two boats are pulled up here. They're washing their nets, as we'll find out later in the story. They didn't catch fish, but they still have to clean the nets. And whatever they hauled up in their nets, they're cleaning their nets here. The boats are here. And Jesus is speaking to the crowd. And as he is speaking to the crowd, he, he moves knowing what he knows. If we think of the parable of the four soils, we think that he speaks to the crowds. What happens as we move forward in the story, I won't get ahead of myself, but Jesus moves closer to Peter. So for the crowd, they're crowding around him, Luke writes, and it would have been difficult like to stand in the middle of a crowd and to speak. So for practical nature, he moves back to provide a stage for himself so that everyone there can hear. But as he moves back, he's actually moving closer to Peter. And I think that's just as significant, if not more so, as what he is doing with the crowd. Verse 2, he saw at the water's edge two boats left by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. He is moving right next to Simon and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus is now preaching the word of God. He has gotten Peter away from his nets and brought him into the boat with him. He has moved right next to Peter. We know that faith comes from hearing, but we're not looking at just hearing here. We're looking at repentance. Jesus, in his foreknowledge, Ephesians 1.4, is moving in to a person where the, the words of God are becoming real to him. 
Verse 4, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. When I look between the lines here, Jesus has been preaching for some time. Have you ever been in a church or listening to a message where the message goes from a, an audience to you? This is, we've talked about this in church builders, the Word of God has the power of God to do that every time you hear it. What needs to change? The soil. So in the parable of the four soils, when a person becomes receptive, when a person is absorbing, when a person is receiving the Word of God, that's what happens to you and I when we're hearing the Word of God and it seems as though He is just speaking to me. So Jesus, and we're going to look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament he may have been preaching from, suddenly it zeroes in on Peter. Um, one of the things about salvation, one of the things about conversion, one of the things about what does God expect from me, what does God expect from me converts from what can I do for God. Either way, it's a hurdle that's got to be crossed. He asks Peter, and we're going to learn from this story, that, that Peter was out fishing all night. So to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, you needed to fish at night, and you needed to fish close to shore, because that's where the fish are found. Peter has been listening to Jesus. He has been drawn in by this teacher he has been acknowledging the word of God, and now he's being asked something that doesn't make sense. You catch fish near the shore at night. They fished all night. It's daylight now. The sun is up, and J Jesus is telling Peter, go out into the deep water in daylight and catch fish. We don't have fishermen here, so I use Dave as an example. Imagine if a vegetable farmer came to Dave after he was working all day on their car and said, try this, something that has never worked before, that he has never seen, that he knows from experience, will not work. And what Jesus is asking Peter to do is acknowledge who I am. Acknowledge me as your authority. And look what Peter does. Verse 5, Simon answered, Master, curios, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. There's a progression here where this teacher that he knows, this teacher that he has heard, if we study the harmony of the Gospels, Andrew knew Jesus before Peter knew Jesus. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew brings Jesus and Peter together. So all of that is in the, in the fiber and the network of what is happening here. Peter hears this teacher. He acknowledges him as his rabbi. He acknowledges him as one of authority, one who is speaking in the Gospel of Mark, the very words of God. He has acknowledged him now as his master, and he's close to acknowledging him as God. So verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners, and this would have included Andrew, and we'll see later, James and John, and whoever else was fishing with them. 
So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they, they came and filled the boat so full that they began to sink. We're going to stop here. We're going to come back to this passage. But what happens in this moment is that Jesus has gone from teacher to authority to God. So John, in his gospel, in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, it says that Jesus did many other miraculous things that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded that you would believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. Jesus has progressed in the eyes of Peter from teacher to authority to God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah if you wanted to, you could take a piece of paper and stick it in Isaiah 6, maybe one in Zechariah 3, and then the passage we're looking at in Luke chapter 5. Because we're seeing conversions in all three of these. We're seeing pictures of them. Jesus, Jesus may have been preaching. In fact, he likely was preaching from the book of Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we see the same progression. It's, it's a quick progression for Isaiah. This is called the call of Isaiah. In Luke chapter 5, we see the call of Peter. In Zechariah 3, we see the call of Joshua, the high priest. So we have gone through steps to get Jesus to the place where he teaches really well. He speaks with authority. He's Lord of the universe. Isaiah is given a vision of Jesus on his throne as Lord of heaven and earth. And we pick that up in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is such an awesome scene that you should read this and read this and look at it and just imagine if you, a human being, saw this scene. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim with six wings, these enormous beings glorifying Jesus on his throne. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts, and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke, or Shekinah glory. Isaiah is confronted by God in a vision. If we read John chapter 12 and verse 41, John says that, and this is important, because nobody meets God the Father without acknowledging that his son is God. And that sounds simple and straightforward to you. That's the number one divider on planet Earth. That's the number one divider in people who call themselves Christians. That they don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he's important. They believe he's created. They believe he's from God. They believe he died for our sins. John says, these are written that you believe he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. The Pharisees were right when they said about Jesus, he is claiming to be God by calling himself the son of God. They're exactly right. That's what son of God means. He is God. Isaiah sees this vision and he sees Jesus in all of his glory sitting on this throne, angels with six wings, two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet. This is the most submissive picture of worship possible with the other wings they're just hovering around the throne and their voices are saying holy 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 is the lord almighty this is the one this is the position by the way from which he decided i will come to earth i will be born i will be lowered i will be covered in sin i will be separated from my father i will go to hell and i will deliver the sins of every human being this is the starting place. Isaiah 6 gives us a picture of where he made that decision. He is the center of worship in heaven, and that the worship is so powerful 
that the place in which Jesus is encompassed in heaven is literally shaking. And they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. When we confront Jesus as God, when a human being realizes who he is, it immediately confronts me with who I am. Let's look at one more picture in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at these three pictures and we're going to go through these three steps in both or all three examples. Zechariah chapter 3. If you're close, if you can find Matthew and go back just a couple of pages. These are real people. When the Jews come back from Babylon to Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon, the high priest is Joshua. Zechariah is the preacher the prophet at that time. So as they're reestablishing worship at the temple, these are actual individuals conducting the worship. But Zechariah the prophet sees a vision of a conversion. God giving the picture using Joshua, who he knows, and talking about his conversion. So he sees a vision here, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus, the Son of God. So the, the person that Isaiah sees in all of his glory, now Zechariah sees that same person, and he sees Joshua in the vision. This is a personal conversion being shown to Zechariah the priest. So then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This is a literal picture of what happens in heaven right now. Verse two, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? Snatched from the fire. Do those words sound familiar? Where do we hear those words? Snatched from the fire. The book of Jude, verse 23, verse 22, is telling us to, to go out and share the gospel with people and to be merciful to them. And then in verse 23, it says, snatch others from the fire. So this is a stick. Joshua is a stick snatched from the fire. Let's go back to... Um, the Gospel of Luke. We have seen three examples to this point. In Peter's story, we see two parallel pictures of Peter in more detail coming to the realization that this individual that's in my boat is God. Isaiah has a clearer picture. This person on this throne is God. Joshua is before the throne um, and actually hold your place in Luke. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 7 for just a minute where Paul explains what, what Zechariah sees that we just described where the Lord rebukes Satan. Plug your name in. Satan is before God the Father right now. Accusing. Tammy, can I use your name? He's before God the Father saying, you cannot let this woman into heaven. Look at her story. Look what she did yesterday. You know what she's going to be like tomorrow. You can't let her in heaven. That's, that's the dark side. Let's look at the bright side. Tammy, if you know Christ as your Savior, we pick it up in um, Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 22, this is how you stay saved because of what Jesus is doing right now. Verse 22, he's referring to the oath that comes from Psalms 110, where God the Father is speaking 
to God the Son, and David is recording it, where he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That means he's a high priest. What does a priest do? A priest represents people before God. How long is Jesus going to do that? Forever. He is a high priest forever. I have sworn and I won't change my mind, the Father says. What does a priest do? Verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the guarantee of salvation. The power isn't in me what I prayed. The power is the one that I trusted. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Underline this verse 25 in your Bible. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. How? How, Paul? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Once you trust Christ as your Savior, He is your representative before the Father continuously forever. So the picture that we see in Zechariah chapter 3, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It says in that chapter that, that Joshua is, is standing before the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is on one side, and Satan's on the other side, and they're before the throne. And Satan is there accusing him, saying, you can't let Joshua into heaven. You know him. You see things that I see that no one else sees. You know what he does behind closed doors. You know, you know how he thinks. You know what he does. And, and the angel of the Lord turns to Satan and says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who chose Jerusalem rebuke you. That's what Jesus does for every believer. That's why once saved, always saved. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. What happens with Peter is what happens with Isaiah is what happens to Joshua and if it doesn't happen to me I will never be saved. The Holy Spirit comes to convict Peter, comes to convict Isaiah, comes to convict Joshua, comes to convict Zechariah, comes to convict June about sin, righteousness, and judgment. If we see a clear picture of Jesus when we are lost, we immediately see a clear picture of ourselves. So let's pick up Peter's conversion as we look in verse 8 of Luke chapter 5. Let's read verse 7 to remember what had happened. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Peter had fished his whole life. He had fished the whole night. He knows where fish are. He knows how to get them in the boat. He knows where to put his net. And he did all of those things backwards at the instruction of this teacher. And the nets are so full that two boats are going to sink. And we would think from just a story standpoint, he'd go, wow, that is so cool. But what happens is that he says, you're God. And Paul, or James describes the word of God, which Jesus has been speaking here as a mirror. When we see the word in truth, we see a reflection of who we are. And Peter has that reflection in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. This is a, an amazing conversion here of a group of men that we get to know very well in the Bible, and much of the Bible is written through them. But they go through a 
Jesus is leading them. First of all, the soil has to be ready. Okay? Maybe there's a thousand people on the shore. Jesus, according to John chapter 2, knows what is in every person's heart. The, the, the audible words of God or reading the word of God comes into our mind. Repentance takes it to our heart and our heart accepts God. So Paul says, you must confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Peter has just done that. Get away from me, Lord, Curios, almighty God. I'm a sinful man. Peter realizes who this man is and Peter realizes who Peter is and he is struck with his own sin. Go back to Isaiah chapter six. And what we're finding in these three examples is that this is the way to come to God the Father. We have to, and Dave is taking us through this again and again and again in 1 John chapter 1. He who acknowledges the Son of God has relationship with God the Father. That's the only way it happens. So what does the Son of God mean? It means he is almighty, infinite God. And that he has the power to save. So Isaiah, we left him off. He, he sees this vision. It's, it's as if he is in the room in heaven and he sees this awesome, almighty God sitting on his throne. And Isaiah knows, because John says that he knows, that this person is the Son of God. This person is the angel of the Lord who met Gideon that Isaiah wrote about and who met with Moses and who met with Abraham and who met with Jacob. And he is now attached to the reality that the, the person who, who came um, in a theophany to Abraham, is this him? He's not just an audible voice. He's not even what he was to Abraham, a, a person who, who appeared in a theophany or, or as a human being. He's saying, you are everything. You are almighty. You are infinite. You are awesome God. And again, when we see what Isaiah sees with these magnificent angels in this, this chorus of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty and this Shekinah glory with this smoke shaking heaven. When we see that in truth, it isn't, wow, that's so cool. We see as Isaiah did and as Peter did. So we pick it up in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, exclamation mark, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. These pictures seem a lot different, but they're the same to Peter and Isaiah. They both see Jesus for who he is. And they're immediately struck with, I'm a sinner. Stay away from me. I can't be near you. I am covered in sin. Let's look at, um, let's read verses five through seven. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lip, your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. We see so many pictures in our real time do you want to go to heaven? Do you want everything that God has to offer? Do you want your life to go well? Then pray this prayer. When we see the, the sincerity and, and the, 
reverential fear of God in a true conversion, we should be able to, we need to be able to explain these pictures that we're looking at today to someone we know who is lost. The first thing we want them to know is God really loves you. He, he decided before the creation of the world that, that he would do everything he could so that you would have everything that he has. He saw you on the cross. When we read John chapter 17, we realize that no matter what your name is, the whosoever, all the whosoever's were thought about from the cross. He's thinking about you when he's saying, shall I say, Father, keep me from this hour? Absolutely not. This is what I came to do. You can put your name right in there and say, he came to save you. He came to save me. Peter and Isaiah are struck with the awesome nature of God as we go to Zechariah chapter 3 which is more of a visual of the conversion. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see this same progression. He is the burning stick snatched from the fire. Jesus is rebuking Satan. We're seeing inside the conversion of this Son of God converting this Joshua. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. What does Isaiah say? All our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. Joshua is there. He is confronted with the same mirror that, that Peter sees, the same mirror that Isaiah sees. When you're in the glory of the presence of Jesus Christ, you realize who you are. You're covered in filthy clothes. You're lost. You're unclean, as Isaiah says. Get away from me, Peter says. I'm a sinful man. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel of the Lord is the same person Isaiah sees. It's the same person in the boat with Peter. And he said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head and put a clean turban on, excuse me, put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. In Isaiah's case, we see this magnificent picture of the throne. We see the, the uncleanness of Isaiah and one of these seraphim takes a coal from the altar near Jesus and he touches Isaiah's lips and he says, see your, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And here we see an example here where he takes off the filthy clothes and he puts a turban on him and puts clean clothes and he's cleansed him completely forever. The accuser in Zechariah has lost. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. The response and the request is going to be the same in all three of these, which leads me to believe that it is necessary to be confronted with who Jesus truly is. It is necessary to be confronted with your sin. Paul says that the kindness of God leads to repentance. Paul says in another place, 2 Corinthians 7.10, that Godly sorrow, in Peter's case, away from me, Jesus, I'm a sinner. In Isaiah's case, I'm a man of unclean lips. In Zechariah's place, place, I'm filthy. Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. All of these men are a picture of that. Paul says in... Um, Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, that everyone needs to repent from their sins by turning to God. And then in chapter 26 and verse 20, he says, I preach to people everywhere. They must turn from their sins to God and then they must demonstrate through what they do. Yes. 710. And then Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 
says that the kindness of God is intended to lead to repentance. So we're seeing three pictures in the Bible of repentance. These are our doctrinal pillars. They're not the only ones. But there aren't multiple ways to come to God. We know there's not multiple people. There's only one way, truth, and life. It's the person Isaiah sees on the throne. It's the person standing next to Joshua, defending him against Satan. And it's the person in the boat with Peter. And this is the picture of how we come to the Father through him. So the final stages then, and I've said this often recently, no one is called to salvation. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Everyone is called through salvation. So Jesus' goal in Isaiah's life isn't, okay, you're saved, I'm going to go save somebody else. With Peter, it's not, okay, you're saved, I'm going to get out of the boat and go back to what I was doing. And with Joshua, it's not, you're saved, now go on with your priestly duties. In all of these cases, it is the same. Follow me. In all of these cases. So let's use Peter first. We pick it up in verse 10. We stopped off in the middle of there of Luke chapter 5. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. This is a intimate group here coming to the acknowledgement of who this person is giving them, who this carpenter is giving them fishing advice. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Go into all the world and get people saved. That's not what it says. Do people need to be saved to follow God? Yes, they do. Once they are saved, are they saved forever? Yes, they are. Are they called to salvation or are we called to follow Christ? We're called to follow Christ. That's why the Great Commission says, in Luke it says, Jesus says in the Great Commission, that repentance of their sins and forgiveness or Forgiveness of their sins through repentance will be preached everywhere. And Matthew, he says that go into all the world and make disciples. Disciples are learners or followers. So the goal is discipleship and not salvation. You need to be saved with the understanding that discipleship is the call. If you are called to any club or team or anything else, you know that the, the goal isn't to be in the club, it's to participate in what the club does, is to participate in what the team does. So he says here in the middle of verse 10, then he said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. His omniscience led him into the boat because he knew Peter would repent. He knew that Peter would see him for who he was and see Peter for who Peter was. He would repent and then he would wait for his instructions. And verse 11 is still one of the most amazing verses in the Bible to me. Think of this in reality. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. These boats are full of the greatest catch that Peter, Andrew, James and John have ever seen in their life. They could barely get them to shore. This is the fishing company that is the only way of life that they know. Jesus says, follow me, and they walk away. Imagine this sight if you were just a tourist in Galilee. You're walking along the shore and these, these boats are just overflowing with fish. Whose boats are these? Well, there were Peter, Andrew, James, and John's. They were the son of Bonerji's fishing company. Well, where are they? We'd like to buy some fish. They left. Well, what time are they coming back? They're not coming back. Well, where did they go? They followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. This is not just a story in the Bible. This is real people. A real conversion. Waiting for real instructions that they would really obey.
That is amazing to me. Let's look to Isaiah's response. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's, let's go through his conversion beginning in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, and he had taken from tong with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'll go. The King Almighty wants me to tell people about him. What did he do for me? He took me from, woe, I'm a sinner, to my guilt is taken away and my sin is atoned for. Isaiah wasn't called to the altar. He was called to testify. And when he saw who Jesus was, which told him who he was, and he heard the question, who will go? I'll go. Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their boats and followed Jesus. Isaiah says, whatever you need, I'll go. Let's look at Zechariah. How is he going to be included in the equation? In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. He's given him the great commission, <laughs> in a sense, in his real time, in the temple, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the same name we see in Isaiah 6, the same reality of the person in the boat with Peter. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. All three of these individuals, Peter, Isaiah, and Joshua, are given the reality that you've seen the king, you've seen who you are, I will cleanse you and give you a place forever with me if you follow me. So we were talking about a verse in Sunday school, faith without works is dead. There seems to be a tug of war with that verse. It's, it's works. No, it's not. It's, it's faith. And, and, and we're, we're unable to step back and just say, okay, it's true. Faith without works is dead. Isaiah sees what he sees, Peter sees what he sees, Joshua sees what he sees, and they don't follow him, it's dead. So I won't even be the theologian on what dead means. It just It's true. It's dead. Let's turn in our Bibles in closing to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The question to me is, is my conversion like theirs? Do I drop everything and do everything that he tells me to do? Does he have veto authority over every decision I make? Do I go wherever he tells me to go? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is considering this. And he is talking about what Isaiah and Joshua and Peter Andrew, James, and John stepped into is the ministry of reconciliation. As soon as sin happens in the garden, the reality is that God is separated from man by man's choices. The ministry of reconciliation, Jesus came to reconcile everything and everyone. 
Who did he come to save? John 3.16. Everyone. Who did he come to condemn? John 3.17. No one. John 3.18. How are people condemned? By their own choices. I see who he is. I hear about him. I'm not interested. If he's going to tell me where to go, if he's going to tell me whom shall I send, that's not what I want. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, this is our response. Christ's love compels us. I have to ask myself that question. Did Isaiah look compelled? Yes. Did Peter look compelled? Yes. And it says at the end of Peter's conversion that they left their boats. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John all surrendered their life to Christ. Did Joshua obey? I believe he did. Does Jim obey? Does Christ's love compel Jim? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Verse 15 fits everyone that we used as an example today. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We saw the heavenly point of view today in three examples. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone. Remember the words to Isaiah and Joshua, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, it's gone. Verse 18, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It would be easy to say that, read the rest of the book of Isaiah, follow Peter through the Gospels and through the book of Acts and through First and Second Peter. The rest of his life was devoted to the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what he expects of every new creation. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I rebuke you, Satan. I've atoned. I've cleansed. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What is the message of reconciliation? Turn from your sins to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge him as Lord and Master. And go where he tells you to go. That is acknowledging what God has for you. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. If Jesus was on the stand in a courtroom, would he want you to defend him? Would he want me to defend him? If multiple choice religion is fleshing out or threshing out the truth about God, can God use you? To always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you the reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is the reality of the person that these men saw and what he did for us. God made him, God the Father, made Jesus the Son, we see in Isaiah 53, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, it hurts to know that you did that to your Son on my behalf. But I look forward to the day where I can thank you in person for doing just that. And right now, as we remember that you made him sin, 
who knew no sin so that we could receive the righteousness of God in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.